0: This is the Critical Conversations podcast, a KPOV special project developed to feature unique perspectives and the courage it takes to go there, challenge mundane thought, and question the norm.
1: Judy and I are happy to have Carrie Freeman and Deborah Merskin join us today. And they are the founders of the website Animals and Media. Just to give you a little uh, background of these two Very impressive women. They are both PhDs. Uh, Deborah is a professor at the School of Journalism and Communication at the University of Oregon. And Carrie Freeman is an associate professor, Department of Communication at Georgia State University. And what they have established is a website which addresses how animals should be described in a media atmosphere. Their target basically is journalists, advertisers, public relations people, as well as the entertainment media. Welcome to you both, Carrie and Deborah. Thank you so much, Christine. Christine. So tell us a little bit about what the impetus was for you to establish this website.
0: The coming together of minds um, on this website really came from a term that's being used a lot now, but it was seeing the intersectionality of individuals on the basis of race, gender, sex, other sorts of isms in the media. And to both of us, it was clear that animals are also stereotyped and Represented in ways that can definitely impact how we think about them, what category they're put into, how people think they know about a particular species of animal based on how media present them. So after decades of teaching about respectful, responsible ways of representing marginalized humans, it became clear that there was a need for a style guide to um, respectfully and accurately represent animals. So this was built on that same model that Native American Journalist Association, GLAD, which is gay, lesbian, transgender representation, and others said to media professionals and the general public: if you're talking about us or issues of concern to us, here are the kind of words that we suggest you use the way you image and so forth in ways that honor and respect accuracy and and the communities animals don't have those voices although they do communicate so using um the knowledge of many of our colleagues as allies we then constructed best practices
2: and i wanted to say this is carrie i wanted to say that uh Deb was my advisor when I was at University of Oregon, and I was a PhD student in the communication school there. And so we both do media studies related to uh, animal issues and critical animal studies. And so we also wanted to take some of what we've been doing in academia and translate it out there for the media instead of all our work just, you know, like ending up in academic journals and books, we wanted to also say, here's some of the recommendations that we're, we're saying when we write an article about advertising of, of meat or when we read something about the way journalists talk about farmed animals and we make recommendations. So we were like, well, let's put those recommendations actually online so that everyone could see them and hopefully use them or argue with them or whatever, but at animalsandmedia.org they're out there so that um, the public can consider, you know, how to be more respectful uh, to other animals and their habitats.
1: Can you talk a little bit about how you like to hear animals referred to?
2: Yeah, it's such a tricky word, isn't it? animal, I mean, in the sense that it's been such a negative word. Um, And, and it's so confusing, because we humans are also animals, but the way we when you hear the word animal, it it usually implies every other animal species in animal kingdom except us. And so we try to bring that in. And we'll, we'll often say, you know, uh, animals, including humans, or, or the human animal or, We'll of us will say the more than human world or non-human animals like we I'll play around with the term, even though it's not it's a little clunky and it causes people probably to go, wait a minute. What did you just say? Uh, But I think it's always worth clarifying that it's not two categories of humans and then everyone else that we're all animals um, and humans. You know, I want to kind of re-empower the notion of animality, and that's hard to do uh, based on the, the racism associated with the notion of being animal in the human world. So there's a lot of um, baggage with the term animal that we all need to be really sensitive to. Um, so it, it, it's difficult to find the right words sometimes, you know, to talk respectfully about other species.
1: Can you talk a little bit about the pronouns that that you you prefer and what you don't like? Just to make our, our listeners more aware. I, I thought it was very interesting to read about it when I write about it on the website. So, Well, what we're looking for is
0: the idea that when you are writing about or talking about animals other than humans, I'll use that expression for this moment right now, uh, that... Despite what Microsoft spell check or some style guides like Associated Press say, it is not only inaccurate, but it is insensitive to refer to an animal as it, to any living sentient being as an object. And that's what an it is. It objectifies, it turns just, you know, your dog is no different than a chair in that way. And we know that's not at all true. So the idea is to use, if you know the sex of an animal, then use that when referring to that animal. And then you can find ways to language that not only makes each individual animal more visible, but also brings forward the relationship that we have with them. And that as in other papers and that, that have written, they are someone, not
1: something. Do you think that our ability to not refer to them as he or she, uh, but as it has allowed us to subject them to a lot of, to cruelty, to inhumane treatment. Do you think that's added to it and that that this is somewhat of... Yeah.
2: I do think that's the basis of our concern. Um, at Animals and Media and with really so many members of the animal rights community who have come to say that the language needs to change. Yeah, that at the basis of our concern is if we keep referring to other individuals as it, that makes it easier to use them as tools, which is what we tend to do, or just dismiss their interests, or just to discuss them more in mass as just like a grouping instead of an individual they're really, they're each persons of sorts with personalities. Um, and a lot of them are gendered. But even if, even if you didn't know um, the sex or gender of an individual, it's also best to say they and not it. And we're doing that more now to be respectful um, to, the, to gender fluidity and um, people who are non-binary. A lot of us are starting to just say they um, even though that's that's there for um, plural, and the problem, of course, in the English language um, is that we, for a singular individual, when you don't know um, their gender or sex, you have to say he, she, or she, her. You know, like you don't you don't know. And so, I think with a lot of journalists and others, it's been too clunky because a lot of the times when we're talking about non-human animals, we don't know. Their sex or you're talking about, you know, animals who might be in a research lab or especially wildlife. You, you don't know. Um, and so they just it's just easy and maybe a little lazy of us to just keep saying it whenever because we don't know. But we're talking about one individual. But I think we should, you know, say, okay. even though we're talking about one individual, let's use the plural term they or let's go with he, she, even though that's kind of clunky, you know, but it's more accurate. It is not
3: accurate in describing um, someone, as Deb said. I totally, totally agree with this and get it. But I found when I was reading through your information that I'm guilty I'm guilty of it. And I. I, it seems a little awkward. Like, for instance, if I were to say that cow jumped off the slaughterhouse and is running away, I hope they get away or something, which it seems awkward because it's only one cow. (laughs) Right. You have to retrain yourself. It took me a while and I
2: probably slip up from time to time, hopefully not on this radio show, but Um, I notice a lot of people just even within the animal protection community still saying it and but right and they're not doing it so just because someone's saying it it that doesn't mean they want animals objectified. Let's clarify that it's just it's the common way we've, we've come to talk about them. But I do think if all of us could go through the hard work of retraining the way we talk um, and being more conscientious about it and saying, you know, about that particular cow who escaped slaughter saying, well, he or she is running free, but men are following them with guns or we don't know whether the cow is female or male. But so I'm just going to refer to them as they, you know, like you just find a way to talk about him or her without describing the cow as it. Yes, and so yes, I agree. Uh, and I think we do have to set that standard in the animal protection community. But but our campaign at Animals and Media, along with of Animals, is to try to get the Associated Press to also put that in their style books so that journalists could start doing it. And then once you see it commonly, if people are so many people are saying they or he or she, then it'll just be easier for all of us to do it, and it'll become um, second nature. Just like I think how we've changed um, from saying chairman all the time or mailman or fireman, you know, to mm-hmm. get away we've tried to get away from using the term man in everything yeah. to recognize that we'll say chairperson or firefighter, you know, to be more gender neutral. So there's ways we've we have adapted our language in the past to be more inclusive. And this is just another example of that. I just wanted
0: to add a couple things there, which is for those of us who study language and know the connection between language and power and control is you find that anytime it becomes difficult or awkward to language something, you're usually bumping up against a system that doesn't want you to think in any other way than you do. And I often use the example of same-sex marriage, right? And... The idea that it was clunky and awkward when began changing the language around marriage, but the fact that it was becoming complicated by real human relationships that didn't fit a very uh, heteronormative model gave some indication of there's something going on here that needs to be addressed because otherwise we wouldn't, same with the word animal, like you said earlier, Carrie, is well, wait a minute, we're all animals, humans are mammals, we're, you know, we go through this kind of thing. Also related to it with the Associated Press is a very important article, that uh, journal article, but a very accessible one that Dr. Freeman co-authored that speaks to the code of ethics of journalism professionals providing a voice to the, for the voiceless, which is kind of our subhead. On our our website, and Carrie, could you speak to that a little bit? Because that should be an argument the AP sees as wait a minute, our code of ethics says we should be doing this.
2: Yeah, for the Society of Professional Journalists, one of their code of ethics talks about um, well, like holding the powerful accountable and not always just talking to and about powerful sources. But making sure that all voices in society are heard and all groups are represented. And even though I think voice for the voiceless, it usually means humans. They didn't really mean other animals. We're arguing that anyone who's affected by the news and other animals are affected, even though they don't read or listen to the news. (laughs) Um, But the way we talk about them changes the way we treat them and we as humans are extremely powerful as you've seen uh, on this planet and so it is important that their voices are heard and sometimes that'll mean that we actually the journalist should actually talk to or describe what other animals are going through non-human animals or that can mean that you you get someone like any of us to speak on behalf of other animals in in the human language uh, using to to discuss their interests because journalism is supposed to be a diverse public forum to debate all kinds of perspectives. And so often, um, you know, the animal perspective is left out. Like oftentimes when we, we are talking about natural disasters or the death toll from natural disasters or something, we just completely forget that humans aren't the other one. Any only individuals who may have died in the latest wildfire or tornado or um, hurricane, um, and so or heat wave, and. So, and like, the more we ignore them when they're affected, the more it kind of says, well, it doesn't really matter what happens to them. Like we can just forget about them or ignore them. So I'm like, no, whenever we're talking about a death toll from a natural disaster of all the living beings, let's include, you know, the human and the non-human in that. So it's just really about being more inclusive, which helps us recognize their existence on this, on this earth.
1: I also, um, you know, this is not related to animals, but you can also see in the media when there's a, a like a plane crash or it's always they reference the Americans first. And it's almost like a little bit of a hierarchy. A hierarchy. Yes. And uh, it's always bothered me like it's more important that Americans. Don't... <laughs> Granted, they are a U.S.-based media company, but still it. it To me, it just the wrong message. Yep.
2: Yeah, I I think that's good that you're pointing that out because it also shows that maybe the news media is always kind of thinking maybe that this is kind of a business and we need to have a target market who's self-interested. So let's always tell them how this relates exactly to their life. But uh, in general, I don't think that I mean, while that makes sense in many ways, like, okay, it's relevant to you, the story. Um, and everybody needs to be concerned about their, their, you know, their own health and everything, but we also need to foster a sense that everyone matters and that we need to be concerned about all lives. And, um, and so you, you don't do that by always appealing to people's self-interest or just saying, oh, somebody like you was injured or hurt. So therefore you should care. It's no, like, um, you know, we should care, um, because you know this is something that affects everyone or there are other sentient beings who are hurting out there so in general i think whatever movement you're in whether it's a social justice movement environmental or animal protection even though you might be you might think it's more convincing to appeal to someone's own self-interest like to say someone should be vegan just to lower their cholesterol or something (laughs) or to lose weight and while maybe that could be true and beneficial that's not really the most important reason to go vegan. What the most important reason is because that it's better for everyone and it's more responsible and it's more ethical. And anyway, those are the kinds of appeals that I like to see more of in general.
3: I really liked it. It was brought out in one of the things I read, I'm not sure which, that we shouldn't be just talking about the way animals are treated in slaughterhouses and how awful it is. We should be talking about the ethics of, of having them at all in slaughterhouses or yes. killing them at all. I love that because yeah. that's that's where we need to go.
2: Yeah, I, I did my master's thesis back in like 2002 <laughs> um, on farmed animals and the way they were covered in the news. And that actually was one of my conclusions is that when animal interests are brought into the news related to farmed animals. We tend to talk about their welfare, but that's the same discussion we've been having for centuries. And, and you know, that, oh, we're not treating them well enough on the farm. And, and that was actually always true even before factory farming. It's always been an issue of animal suffering in uh, because you're killing them. So, um, but what we're not talking about is an animal rights perspective that Debates whether or not we should be using animals and keeping them in captivity as tools for our own interests, whether they are in a circus or whether they're in a research lab on a fur farm um, or, you know, in a slaughterhouse. So, yeah, we do call upon the news media to help us have a public debate about the right to use animals and whether use itself constitutes abuse. And let's stop just talking uh, all about the size of the cages or how clean they are and or whether or not somebody felt pain at the moment they were killed or something like that. To me, that those we're not going to we don't get anywhere. We don't. Well, I shouldn't say anywhere. We don't get very far with continuing those kind of discussions when the bigger issues we shouldn't. We're not we're not entitled to use all these animals and it's not fair to farm anyone.
1: I think one of the things that has been brought to my attention recently with the heat waves that we've had out here in the West is you hear about the human factor, but very, very little about the animals. And with the exception today, I heard that the price of beef was going up. (laughs) Oh no. (laughs) And it was like, how are they surviving? in 107, and 110 degree heat. What about all these animals that are out on the pasture?
0: Without a bit of shade. You know, I drive through that right. every day out here, where there aren't trees other than some junipers. Mm-hmm. And most of these farms were built on land that anything had been cleared anyway. And they're out there with their calves, as our horses, horses get a little bit better regard, usually, but Um, the cattle who are going to be killed anyway, but they're suffering throughout this. It's, you know, it's 110 and they're in the sun, right? They have no, yeah,
1: yeah. Or another
0: example is, and I was really glad to hear the story come out, uh, not just an everybody feel better story, but what animals were lost? What companion species were lost? The building collapse in Miami, We heard the story of Jinx, I think was the name of the kitty, that uh, ninth floor, and that was, that survived, right? What about the other pets, the other animals that were in those condos? Who's telling their stories? How many are unaccounted for? And how many bodies have been found? And why isn't that also part of the discussion?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, the same and I think thing-
0: it
2: can seem kind of trivial, too. And that's why journalists are maybe a little bit hesitant to mention that, because similar, Christine, to the hierarchy that you referred to before, yeah. there's the sense that you be that you belittle human life if you mention a, another species yes. in any capacity along the same lines and so it like our you know the pets or companion animals their lives are trivial in comparison to ours and I totally understand why you would think that or people would think that when we we basically murder animals at such a high rate like of course then we don't value their lives even though a lot of us value our individual companion animals but when we mass produce and mass murder other animals in industrial fashion every day by the millions, it is hard to say that their lives actually matter because we as a society made sure that they don't and that their lives are cheap. Right. So then it's hard for us to show respect for a cat or a dog who also perished and suffered um you know in in these collapse of these buildings or in any of these natural disasters so i it's like i get the the conundrum so it, that's why it's part of this bigger issue like that until we stop killing so many animals it's also harder to talk about right. them respectfully but we also need to start talking about them respectfully so maybe we'll stop killing them you know it's yeah i just had together.
0: a chapter come out in a new book um and in it i talk about i kind of coined the phrase uh, species trader," and just like terms like race trader," that to care about the welfare, the well-being of other animals doesn't make you a traitor to human, to the human race, right, to our own species, because we'll often hear that, how can you be arguing for, you know, how the cattle are in the heat, because so many humans are suffering? Yeah. Well, yes, and that matters too, but right now we're talking about the animals, but that Embracing all beings into the circle of compassion does not make a tr- us a traitor to our own kind, right? It's not like, oh, by caring about these animals, I, that automatically makes me less concerned about humans or that I don't care about them or that my values are misplaced. It's like, why do we have to choose? Is, no, I, is I totally
1: impossible. agree with you. I mean, how many people heard about the fact that, remember the boat that was blocking the Suez Canal, mm. that there were live sheep on that boat and how long they were in there with probably no food or water Ugh. and that tremendous heat. It was just awful. It's, right, because it's
2: probably discussed as an economic story. And that's another yeah. thing that really bothers yeah. me. <laughs> and I addressed in my master's thesis about farmed animals, but also it, in animals and media as well. You can't just discuss agriculture or all these other things, or even just using animals and research labs isn't just a science story or a health story. There's another story there, which is about captivity and use and the lives of those individuals who were just brushing past that. And every time a journalist does that, that they just don't mention like hundreds or thousands of individuals who are suffering just because they're sheep and not homo sapiens. Um, that gives everyone permission to say, oh, well, OK, I don't have to worry about that. And, you know, I can just keep eating sheep or, you know, and then it makes it more uncomfortable for any of us to raise the issue of the sheep. Because then everybody's t- saying like, well, it's more of a business issue and millions of dollars are at stake here. So right. don't yeah. you know, yeah. talk yeah. about it. Yeah. It's just easy for us to continually trivialize um, these other animals um, so long as they're supposed to be valued in economic terms, which is also I find a very masculine way of looking at the world, very objectifying and um, not the way. I want to look at the world or the kind of world I want to live in, really.
3: Years ago, when I decided to focus my life on animals, one of the main reasons was because it's not culturally accepted that we harm humans. It's not culturally accepted that humans die or that we harm them, but it is so culturally accepted that animals can die. And just for our convenience, if a mouse gets on our house, if a if a rat comes in our house, it's OK to kill them. Well, I don't agree with that. <laughs> and and of course, all the animals we killed for food and for research and all the other things you've been talking about, that's also culturally accepted.
2: Yeah. And I do want to also just acknowledge um, the Black Lives Matter movement, though, too, because they, like, they're trying to also say, hey. Human lives are supposed to matter, but Black lives have not mattered as they should. And so we even see, obviously, and I think you understand you understand this, that within human society, and this gets back to Deb's point also about marginalization or even, Christine, your point about privileging Americans over um, maybe um, immigrants or something, uh, that there's all these hier- hierarchies within human culture about valuing lives and white privilege that's been associated with that and male privilege. Um, And then I think, you know, the non-human animals get put like even further down the list. And the problem in general is all the hierarchies at all. Right. Like you, but I, but I know what you're saying, Judy, that in general it's illegal to do things to humans. Now we're arguing now that the police are not uh, they're bending the law. Right. And they're not actually treating humans appropriately based on racial discrimination. But you, you, we can say that on the books, Um, mistreatment of humans is illegal, right? And so, but mistreatment of animals is, well, is not illegal. In fact, it's sanctioned and only certain things kind of within industry are off limits. But most things that enable someone to make a living off of or make a profit off of other animals are legally sanctioned. And so then it becomes harder for us to critique it And then that's why then in the news, you get stuck in this conundrum of then just talking about, did they break the law? And is it some little welfare law about how they're treated in industry? And we kind of go in that rabbit hole again, instead of asking ourselves why we think it's appropriate to breed them and hold them in captivity and then use them just to make money. That's not appropriate.
1: So how do you assess whether the media is getting your message and whether things are changing? Or is it too early to make that?
2: Deborah, have you figured out the answer to that question? (laughs) We're not (laughs) going to have percentages or statistics for you. I I don't don't know know, anything like that. that. I think maybe
0: beginning to to see that some communicators, journalists, and that are actually doing that. I remember, and I was so embarrassed because I jumped all over and I contacted the reporter from OPV because it was a story on an owl. Um, that had been um, rescued and rehabbed here locally in Bend. And I saw it language in the story. Well, as a reporter pointed out to me, the language that, that he used actually referred to the owl as a he, even though at the wildlife ref, uh, rescue, where I actually a volunteer, we didn't know the sex of the owl, but we're just calling him He um, in that way. And so by saying that, I realized this reporter then later told me that he had a conversation with his editor. How should we refer to animals? The veterinarian said it, Uh, but he wasn't comfortable with that. And to me, yeah, Yeah. (laughs) it's a wonderful example of that. So I think more so as we See this. I mean, I would love to connect everybody who's doing this and gets it, but beginning to see examples of that where is one way to do it. Right. Or bringing finding examples like that, showing them to our students, which are some exercises we needed to do a long, long time ago. When it came to, say, in news media, they used to identify people of color by their race and stories, but they never said, Joe Johnson comma white Mm, in their stories. And eventually people began to see how problematic that was of why would you identify someone by their race on a topic that has nothing to do with race for everyone but white people? And that was a practice up until a couple decades ago. But once you reveal that, then it becomes clear. So I think through education, media literacy kind of programs and education, starting with kids, because important with kids. They start out knowing, feeling that relationship with other animals and get taught into a system of consuming meat and the whole process that's there. So I think continuing through education to make them aware, contacting reporters, filmmakers that we see as consumers. And I think that's also on our website when we talk about what um, private individuals can do to be more um, accurate and respectful is to celebrate media when they do the right thing. Yes. To yeah. Not only, and this applies to anything. Is like you see an ad that's really re- responsible, um, not only getting on them when they, are not doing the right thing, but celebrating them when they do.
2: And I also want to mention sentient media because Deb Merskin and I are involved with them, but that's a great new um, nonprofit organization where they're training and encouraging writers from all over the world to write, to write respectfully about sentient beings And to do news stories about um, all these kind of animal rights oriented issues and try to get them published, you know, in mainstream news organizations. Or they also end up on the sentientmedia.org website. So there's also a whole group of kind of burgeoning journalists, right, um, who are trying to get these stories out. But like Deb says, from like because there's so many times when we don't see the kind of change we want what we need to do is celebrate it when we see it and take the opportunity um like we hope that um the animal protection community and the environmentalists will let their news organizations and media organizations know about animalsandmedia.org as a resource because deb and i really are just professors and we can't really promote the animalsandmedia.org site as much as it should be promoted so we're hoping that every time somebody does write a letter to the editor or whatever, they'll say, oh, and by the way, in future stories, why don't, why isn't your news organization follow the journalistic guidelines at animalsandmedia.org or or discuss it in your newsroom. You know, like even have a discussion about it, even if they don't agree with everything that we, all the guidelines we put on there, I'd like them to at least consider it and take it seriously.
3: Yeah, In defense of animals has been very supportive of Animals and, and media, right? Yeah. And I think it's on their website or is it on yours that there's an open letter that people can go to and it gives an example of what they could write? Yeah, that's on the In Defense of Animals okay.
2: website because it was Alicia Grafe at Indefense of Animals that got Deb Merskin and I involved <laughs> in a campaign <laughs> with the Associated Press. Even though I think years ago in 2014, when we first came out with the guidelines, we wrote um, the Society of Professional Journalists and the the um, Associated Press style book about suggestions we had for improving the way that they referred to animals. Um, but then, you know, nothing changed. And then we went about our lives and and then we focused on individual um, type thing, like media. But then, um, Getting back to the Associated Press, since they hadn't made a change to their animal guidelines in so long, it, it was Alicia and End Defensive Animals that really kind of pushed us to make it more of a campaign and get so many people involved, including high-profile people like Jane Goodall, <laughs> being the biggest name, um, mm-hmm. to sign on to this letter. So, um, yes, it is at the End Defensive Animals site. And, Judy, I sent you a link in case you want to post it for your listeners to a petition also that people can sign if they want to say that they themselves are going to try to do what we're talking about and not say it. And then also try to um, encourage their um, media makers um, on the shows that they watch um, to encourage them to be more
3: respectful as well. Well, it's an extremely worthwhile endeavor. (laughs) I really appreciate both of you for doing it. Thank you. We appreciate you doing this radio show. Absolutely. Absolutely. Of course.
2: Like this is an example, I we should have mentioned you, this ex- is an example of positive media. <laughs> when you were just asking, have things <clears> changed? <throat> well, we have the All Things Vegan radio show, and that's that's positive. <laughs> yes,
0: and for listeners in an uh, additional show, right? Because you don't have to be in Atlanta to take in your show, Carrie. Yeah, Maybe. I do an
2: Intune to Nature environmental show. Yeah. That yeah. yeah, it considers animal protection issues a lot on yeah. to nature. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so that's also just incentive for anyone listening to produce their own media, right? Like to if you don't like the way your group or anybody is being represented, then write, try to write your own stories and, and get them out there and promote the kind of lifestyles and values that you would like to see in society
1: is your podcast focused on wildlife? Carrie. We I we often do talk about wildlife because when I'm
2: trying to connect animal protection issues and and the nature environmental connection, I I do end up talking more about wildlife than and I don't really talk about like animals used in research labs as much or something like that, but the extinction issue comes up constantly and also vegan issues too because of how much animal agribusiness is an environmental disaster and the fishing industry as well. So, um, so we talk about the connections between our food and um, the environment a lot.
1: Because there's not enough information about that on regular big stream media. I'm sorry. Definitely. It it doesn't exist.
2: Yeah. People tend to just think about fossil fuels or driving cars or, uh, but Yes, so much pollution and excess water use um, and including greenhouse gas emissions, pollution um, and then the killing of wildlife that's caused by agribusiness. Whether it's actually killing them because they see them not not fairly as competitors um, to ranching interests. Or just even when they're growing, um, they're clearing forests for like to raise um, corn or soy to feed to farmed animals, then that's wildlife habitat that no longer exists for wildlife. So, so many animals, wild animals, are killed for every animal product that ends up on someone's plate.
3: Look um, at the horses. Look at the horses that are killed. Oh, like Brutally. the wild horses in the West? You out? Yeah. Brutally. So that we can have beef from cattle. Yeah. Yeah. There's a
0: roundup right now in Utah, which we need people to speak out about going on Mm -hmm. that the Bureau of Land Management's involved in, but they're making it very secretive because they know people care about animals and they care about horses. So they're massively rounding them up and these animals will, a few lucky souls will be adopted, but most will be killed and sold as meat. Yep. and it's happening today in utah oh. on this very
1: day and and a lot of the people that adopt the horses end up giving them to slaughterhouses they can make yep. money off of it
2: yeah
1: i you know that's I, double the slaughter than if we're
2: killing horses to, yeah. to then put cows on the land who are then yes. going to get killed I mean, right. this is ridiculous
1: it is it's tied to the
2: free I,
0: range type thing uh, and that's public land public that everyone land. should have a say in and yet yeah, clearly it's the cattle the beef industry that is controlling. it's why we don't see these stories on mainstream media either is because these are big advertisers with very powerful lobbyists who want people to con- so you'll see burger king ads Right. And you'll see all of this, but you won't see a story that's talking about like what the very story we're talking about. Or it ends up on PBS or something where yeah.
2: you yeah. Know, commercial are the
0: ones who have the freedom to cover it without the fear of losing advertising revenue, but are often preaching to the choir.
1: Um, and, and I'm sure the majority of people in this country have no idea that we're rounding up the wild horses and sending them to slaughter. Yeah especially I, like
2: I live in Atlanta out east and I if I wasn't in the animal rights community or if you're not part of the equine <laughs> horse community I don't think the average person on the east coast knows anything about what's happening on public lands cuz we don't have that many out here and we're not right. that conscious of it
1: well supposedly and I believe it's in the infrastructure bill they have put an item in there that said horses could not be sent to, because we don't, we're not legally allowed to slaughter houses in the United States. Right. We but don't kill horses. Canada, they're sent That's to Canada and they're sent to Mexico. And apparently there's a provision in there that says they can't be sent to Canada and Mexico. And I just hope that it doesn't get cut out of the that gigantic yeah. wall that they're trying to pass.
2: Yeah. So. It's so weird to pick which species we're allowed to murder and put in our mouths. You know, I mean, like it's so or, or send them to another state, go over a borderline and then kill them and stick them in your mouth. Right. Like, right. The, and it's I mean, just very odd. And I want other people to see it as odd. Right.
0: Right. It was like awareness. People, a majority of Americans, when all the billions of mink were slaughtered, uh, with COVID, even though we were giving some of the mink the disease and then they were, get, you know, it was going back and forth, but there was a lack of awareness that like, in Oregon, there are 11 farms and 11 mink farms. And simply because the wearing of mink coats has gone down or the use of some of their oils in the U.S., po- more popular than ever in China and in uh, parts of Europe. And so like with eating horses, which it's like, well, we get outraged when we see eat dog slaughter in Korea or China or South Korea or some places like that, where why aren't we concerned about all of them? But it's an economic interest in shipping them out. So there's still big interest in that. But news media can be helpful if people paid attention, revealing Mink are being farmed all over the United States and made into coats and others. Um, but simply because Americans don't think they're wearing them doesn't mean it's not happening.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I heard the other day, I read that they were talking about uh, vaccinating the mink. Yeah. Instead of eliminating the mink farms are going to vaccinate them right
0: right because we've got to preserve that industry right i did a a paper that was starting to look at a website that talks about that has a whole site part of the website is devoted to dealing with um animal rights groups and how to successfully do that but right so so these animals animals are going to die anyway
2: right Oh, Deb, are you saying that the mink industry is trying to talk about how to deal with the pesky animal rights act? Yes. Okay. (laughs) On their website. Right.
1: But yeah, vaccinating the minks so that we can then kill them
2: for, you
0: know,
1: for their skin and for their fur. Yeah. As opposed to closing them down.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So their lives matter in the sense that they're a utility, an economic object.
0: And they're wild. They're, they're also a different animal than some of those who we, we produce and farm and do all that with, which these are at, we don't normally do that with wildlife. I mean, there's elk farms and there's, you know, some of those that are kind of qualify more as wildlife, but, but um, mink are wildlife and exist in there in a way that cows and sheep don't in the same way, the species. So it's another category, too, that I think makes them even more invisible to the average person.
1: Yeah, it
2: must be so stressful for them to have to deal with humans and the cages and then the god-awful anal electrocution or whatever's happening to them at the end to
0: preserve
1: their-
2: Or they gas them. Um, But normally it's, it's, yeah,
0: it's an anal electrode so it doesn't damage the fur.
1: It doesn't make our species sound uh, very good. No, it doesn't. Can you take into consideration what we do to animals. Horrific, horrific. Well, it comes
0: back to language matters and the word choices matter and animals don't have legal standing, which is huge. And there's nothing that distinguishes that their property under the law, no matter what category it is. Wildlife, our property, allegedly, of citizens of that state, uh, farmed animals are the people running the farms, and Pets, so called pets of their owners. And that language is all about that. And we're, Stephen Wise and others are getting some real traction in Oregon. We've had some luck with the legislature here with uh, companion animals such as dogs being moved into a category that would otherwise not differentiate your dog from a chair. And you can treat that chair any way you like. So we're starting to see, like being able to break open windows of cars to get animals out um, so that people don't have to fear prosecution for doing that. They'll do the right thing, recognizing there's a difference between that dog and the box of Kleenex that's in there. And by finding and advocating for the change in use of the words we use to refer to them, I think is a step in the direction of um, making them more visible as as a sentient being You've been listening to a KPov Critical Conversation. To hear more engaging interviews on important topics, please visit kpovorg slash critical conversations.